do you remember like punting when you like go in chat rooms and you punt people out of the chat room? No. It was, like a form of, <laughs> it was an early form of hacking, oh. and I would do it as like a ten-year-old little kid. Oh like, my God. I loved figuring stuff out. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> You're just like trolling people and punting them out. There's a lot to life, and we're figuring it out because who knows? We don't. I'm Jonah. And I'm Jack. This is the podcast of our crusade to be at least mediocre at everything. Welcome to today's episode. And today we're chatting with May about her experience and time being incarcerated and and now more importantly the the activism that she has been doing so thank you so much may for being here yeah thank you guys for having me it's hard to find any kind of platform to talk about this you know people have their stigmas about us but i'm just here to break it awesome that's what we're looking for so um appreciate appreciate you being on and and excited to hear a little bit more about your story and and all that you have to say but i guess the first thing we'll we'll ask you to to do is to tell us a little bit more about yourself well my name is may my pronouns are she her they their them i was born and raised in chicago my parents migrated from bangkok thailand came for the American dream, you know, worked for a manufacturing company for 30 plus years. And um, I just moved out to Arizona to live my free, independent life. And I've been loving it since. It's been 11 years for me. Wow. We have you on here too for uh, your experiences. So can you tell us a little bit more about um, your story there and, and what led you to ultimately share your story today here with us. Yeah, so I moved out here when I was 20 years old, moved to ASU student living pretty much. It was an apartment complex down the street from the university and basically was like sunny days every day. Let's have a pool party. So I got into, you know, the party culture. I would throw like keggers at our pool And that led me to um, getting a minor in consumption ticket. So that was my beginning of being in the system. Um, Just having that, you know, I had a fine of $250. I wasn't paying it because I was like, I'd rather get food with that money or even more booze, Mm -hmm. you know. But um, I ended up getting arrested a couple times because of not paying those fines, Uh, the police would show up at my door knocking. Sometimes I would turn off the lights and like literally hide in my room, but that wasn't always the case. Some, they would arrest me and I would spend like a night in jail and wait for the judge to let me go. But that was only the beginning. Because you couldn't pay this $250 fine. Right. And then you go to jail and then do you have to pay any more fines on top of that? Yeah, when you get arrested, does it cost money for you, like, out of pocket, like, when you go to the hospital? No, it doesn't cost you any money. Um, Sometimes when you do spend time in jail, you can get, it's called time served. So uh, you don't have to pay the fine, and they'll just, like, you know, cancel it out. But that wasn't my case for Mm -hmm. the MIC, because they're like, oh, we know you got money somewhere. (laughs) You know, you're going to pay it. If I had any type of money... I would just want to hold on to it and spend it on, you know, good times, 
eating, yeah, you know, I, rent. I mean, that makes sense to me, and I and I feel like that just speaks to the folks who can't afford two hundred fifty dollars. How it's just like a cycle, right? If you can't if you can't afford it, then you're gonna get arrested again. Oh yeah. So you got your MIC, and and then what happened after that? Um, after that. I ended up getting my first DUI when I was waiting at my ex-girlfriend's work. You know, she was serving and I had a couple of beers. As soon as we pulled out of the parking lot, I saw, you know, the red and blue lights and I pulled over automatically. They were like, we smell alcohol. Can I, can we, you know, give you a, no, I don't even think I took a field sobriety test. They were just like blowing the breathalyzer. And as soon as, I blew, it was a little over 0.08 and I got a DUI. Mm. So with that first one, I think I had to do, oh, I did 24 hours in Tent City. A year later, I ended up getting another DUI, similar experience, you know, going out, having a few drinks and getting pulled over as soon as I got out of that parking lot. Mm -hmm. And it was over 0.08. Got my second DUI, did four months in Tent City. And then the third time I got pulled over for not having a license, they ran my plates and then they were like, whoa, we smell weed. So we're going to uh, draw your blood. And I had weed in my system. So that was my third DUI. Wow. Uh, I'm like flabbergasted by the fact that they can do that i guess because like we will stay in your system for longer than a few hours and so you could have smoked weed like four days prior and then still got a dui yeah uh, that was the law back then i mean now that the uh, legalization of marijuana they actually created uh, protection for people of getting duis while having weed in their system but that wasn't the case back in 2015. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Do you mind just kind of giving like a brief overview of what Tent City is? Yeah. So uh, Tent City was a um, a jail that was all outdoors and it was army tents, basically like what you would see in Afghanistan and what the military had to stay in. Like that's what we were staying in. And it was all year long, you know, it could been really cold winters or really hot summers, but we were outside 24 seven, um, some of us were able to go out on work release programs. Uh, I was, you know, privileged enough to get that. But I mean, a lot of them had to stay there the whole time. Wow. Yeah. And that's been since dismantled, I guess it's no longer in existence. But as far as work release, I didn't know that was a thing until I was in college. Yeah. Very interesting. They also um, require you to give them your paychecks Mm. and uh, they take part of that. What What the fuck? Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Hold up. They take how much? It's like a fee? Uh, Yeah, it's it's a percentage of your paycheck. Oh my gosh. 80%. 90. (laughs) We all had to pay that because it was like a privilege to be able to work while you're, you know, locked up. That's jarring. I did not know that. I'm not going to sleep well tonight knowing that. Yeah, yeah. So you've worked in the you've worked in the restaurant and bar industry. 
and it's it's known that there's a culture that's pretty alcohol centric, especially because that's where you're working all day. And then when you get off of work, you'll have some drinks with your coworkers and whatnot. So do you feel like that culture of, you know, alcohol centric kind of hanging out after hours, do you think that has uh, sort of added to the risk of getting a DUI and kind of maybe falling into sort of oh, what yeah. happened to you, I guess. I think that's a huge part. I mean, that's that was part of my plea when I asked for leniency with the judge. I'm involved with the restaurant industry. It is a norm, and I understand that's like a huge trigger for people to get into these situations. And, um, I mean, there's actually like nonprofits starting from like bartenders for restaurants to start caring about staff's well-being. Wow. You know, oh. because this is so prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every day you know, we got we got off of work. We would meet at the bar, go see a show, have a couple of drinks and then just go home. And, you know, seeing so many customers doing the same thing, it just becomes like, hey, this is normal life. They have a couple of drinks with their dinners or with their brunches. Even they're drinking all day and everyone's leaving. No one's sleeping at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the issue is that this is becoming a culture. And since it is a culture, it's going to expose people more to the criminal justice system. Mm. Mm -hmm. Especially in Arizona, because they they crack down on drinking and driving. Or yeah, because Arizona is a, a zero tolerance state. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, all the people I know who have been in the service industry for longer than a year, you know, have had some some type of scrape with law enforcement, whether to DUI or something close, you know, to that. So I feel like it's definitely not new, not unique. Mm -hmm. No, definitely not. Um, there's actually like, it's a global organization. It's called Bartender Boxing. And um, it's actually sponsored by like Tequila Casadores. And they're trying to bring up the issue of, you know, the industry not taking care of their health and well being. And they got a bunch of bartenders from different cities to train, get healthy, and to actually be registered. Uh, USA boxers. So I did that. That was really cool. Oh my gosh. I remember uh, you got, yeah. I remember you getting into boxing. That's awesome, eh? Damn, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a thing. I mean, if you're going to come up with a whole global organization, because it, it started in uh, Australia and here we are in Phoenix, you know, training to box other bartenders <laughs> and talking about getting fit. Yeah. That's really cool. I love that. Yeah, Jack loves that. I love punching people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not the point I was trying to make, but yeah, he does love punching people too. Uh, no, I used to do I used to do MMA. Yeah, no, it's definitely fun. You know, I've done BJJ and dabbled into Muay Thai and I think that's one thing that like keeps my head straight and I think FOMO is a big one too like I'm always like thinking I'm missing out on something because I've been so part of the industry and there's always events and concerts going on if you have like good goals set up for yourself then you don't really care about all that I would even say for the service industry but also there's a shift in 
like the LGBTQ community because they're trying to get away from bars being the only place where people congregate. You know, there's a lot of people trying to create sober, safe places for people to congregate and meet that in in places where you don't have to spend money. So even if it's a coffee shop, like you would still need to spend money. But when you're working with a population who might have higher risk of being in a low, low socioeconomic status. Uh, but anyway, it's sort of like a similar thing where it's probably really hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, that was like my double whammy too. I mean, not only being an industry worker, but also being gay and wanting to be around other gay people. And I was always at the gay bars. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So hopefully like these culture shifts and, will grow Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and, you know perpetuate maybe like a different idea of how people can spend their time but it's hard and we understand that for sure well we're working towards it yeah Yeah. just talking about it you know yeah totally the third time you got arrested you were in prison for just over two and a half years tell us a little bit more about uh your experiences there if you don't mind Oh, there were a lot of experiences. Yeah, I my sentence was for 2.75. I was supposed to go in for four years, but I got leniency, you know, thankfully, because I had a support system to speak on my behalf. Um, also, I had an attorney that, you know, took my case to trial. But just being in prison, the very first experience I had was waiting in a cell uh, to, you know, go to my yard And these two girls ended up getting into a fight and like this girl got like a busted lip. So I was scared. Yeah. Oh my God. Like, is that going to be me next? Holy crap. Yeah. I didn't know what to think. You know, a lot of people in County, they're like, keep to yourself. Don't trust anyone, you know, just do your time and things will be okay. But I didn't listen to that advice. Instead, I was like, oh, what's your name? Tell me your story, you know? (laughs) I really wanted to get to know everyone. Yeah, I, like, wonder, because, like, in TV, media, all these things, they make jails and prisons out to be sort of like a war zone. There's just a lot of violence and all this stuff, but it sounds like you were trying to, like, cultivate friendships and, like, long-lasting relationships and camaraderie, Um yeah, so that's good. I'm glad you didn't yeah, listen no, to that advice. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I can't speak for the men's prison because I do think they deal with whole other issues that, you know, I can't even fathom having to stick to your own like race and mm. kind of like being more gang affiliated and being scared of um, assault, sexual assault too. So, but with the women's prison, it it is more about like making those relationships just so you can cope with the time being away from your family. And that, that's what helped me the most. I was involved in like sports. I helped like coach softball and volleyball, even though I'd never played (laughs) uh, those sports on, you know, teams in school, but like, it was just fun because yeah, the women, they were, they wanted to improve themselves. Like, they're like, you know, as soon as I get out, I want to do something with my life. I want to be a better, a better mom. And they were um, receptive towards me because I was all about talk about building a future and activism when I was already in prison. 
what do you think about you was the reason for that? Was it because you served in the restaurant industry and, you know, like to, to be in the restaurant in- industry, you have to be a little bit more outgoing and personable, or is that just who you are as a person? Or like you said, was it because you needed to cope? It's definitely who I am as a person. I, I mean, my dad, he's borderline mute. And the only thing I really know about him is that he was a college professor in Thailand and that he was a monk for a couple of years. And that just inspired me to be like a humanitarian. And plus, growing up in Chicago, like we were in the projects pretty much. All my friends, we were poor. Just the demographics in prison, that's that's what you see. You see, you know, impoverished people, people of color. And I just felt like I felt comfortable. I didn't think of myself as higher up than them. And I really wanted to help these people live better lives because that's what I'm, do- I'm trying to do for myself. In, in an all-women's facility, are there still like kind of like gender dynamics where someone's going to assume a more masculine role and is that going to help them more, you know, in, in prison versus someone who is, you know, more feminine presenting? Definitely. I mean, being in a world where everyone is um, a woman, but still seeing gender because you, you do have those like stud butch uh, types, you know, and then there are feminine women as well. But I don't know. It's hard to explain to someone that can't even imagine a world with just one sex. Yeah. Um, it's a very unique situation. Um, I was in there as a more masculine female. So um, I was targeted by correction officers as being like a predator, a predator type. You know, they were always looking out for me, making sure that I wasn't like having intimate relationships. I actually ended up getting uh, moved because they suspected that I was in a relationship with a friend that I made like the first month mm. that I got in. And then they also um, threatened to like give me a ticket for having a radical haircut, which was like a short fade. Mm. Wait, so, they, is there a dress code in prison outside? Of, like, Oh, yeah. Okay, I feel stupid. It's like military. <laughs> if you go short, it just has to be like a buzz cut. It can't be anything fancy. Like I had an undercut mm. and they told me it was radical. So the, the barber really just like shaves your head or like trims your hair? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, the barber does it all. Um, I mean, it was a whole ordeal when the officer was going for me because they were like, who was your barber? We're going to give them a ticket and we're going to give you a ticket. Mm-hmm. And that could have possibly meant me going to medium custody. So like if you're, you know, LGBTQ and you rub an officer the wrong way like there's a way to get yourself into like solitary confinement and you better hope that there are no homophobic officers on while you're there I grew out my hair uh towards the towards the end you know because I learned my lesson the first time they scared me Mm -hmm. so I ended up growing my hair for the last year and that's when I realized I didn't have that many issues anymore yeah wow yeah so you were being targeted 
in prison because you were LGBTQ. You were more masculine presenting, which is interesting. You like like that's that's opposite of uh, outside of prison, I guess, because like outside of prison, it's the the men who get away with things. I mean, there's definitely perks of being masculine in a women's prison. Like you get a lot of attention if there's uh from other inmates like there's there were rumors of people being like sugar babies and taking advantage of others because they got like commissary Mm. but I think in general the women who did get into relationships they were pretty genuine because that's like one of the in my eyes it's one of the best ways to cope and get through that hard time you know you actually have someone that has your back and you feel love in a mm-hmm. dark place. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I try to put myself in that position. And it's like, I would definitely want to have like a go-to person to kind of be there to support me and we have each other's back because it sounds, it does sound very scary. And so having that person as a support system or just making a group of friends. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you can. I, I was going to say, you know, like alluding to what you were, you were talking about earlier, you know, you're you're in here 24-7 for however long your sentence is, however long their sentence might be, too. What are the connections that you're forging? What do they look like with some of the other inmates while you were there? I mean, a lot of the friends I made in there, they took, like, a motherly role uh, with me. You know, I got, I have a lot of mentors in there just sharing their wisdom. Like, look, don't do this because that's what I did, and it didn't end up well for me. Because... You did forge some, you know, friendships and you were with these people for so long, every day, all day. I'm curious what it's like when all of a sudden they're released and maybe this was not anticipated to happen today or what that looks like. Do you receive any type of like grief therapy? Because I'm sure it's really hard you know, that would feel like abandonment and loss. And if it's all of a sudden and then all the time, if you're able to create the support network, like what is that like? It's really hard. You know, there were, I've had a lot of friends leave when I still had like a year left and I would cry and I would wait for mail call and like see if they would write me because everyone says, oh, I'll write you, I'll write you. But really they're just dealing with all their life trying to catch up and stuff and they don't end up writing. It's really sad. Uh, There is no type of therapy that is given to the inmates for that. Um, they're at, it's actually against the law to talk to uh, people who were released and uh, if you're still in prison. So, like, there's some type of rule where, like, if you're a felon, you can't talk to other felons. When one of them is still incarcerated? Yeah. So, like, every time someone would leave, if they did write, they would have to, like, make an alias and, like, cover up their identity. Wow. Because it it would violate their parole. Damn. Why? I mean, uh, I'm speechless. <laughs> like, that's really hard. They say that get a bunch of criminals together, they're going to talk about more criminal activity. So in their eyes, they're thinking, okay, if we um, separate everyone and if they don't contact everyone, then there's less of a uh, chance that they're going to commit a crime again. But yeah. when really, like, that's not the case. It, as far as, like, the demographics of the folks that you, you know, met there, 
it doesn't sound or I'm not anticipating that everybody was like this wild crimi- criminal that uh, the media makes it out to be. No, definitely not. I mean, I was on a minimum yard. So everyone there, a lot of drug offenses. I think over 70% of people in prison are nonviolent. Um, just some people taking the rap because of their boyfriends or husbands, like being stupid, pulling a gun out, you know, and they had to do time just because they were there. Mm. Um, domestic violence, even, oh, sex workers, oh, yeah. lots of those. 1% of the prison population are violent crimes. Um, those are, it's a very small yard. It's called maximum custody. But majority of it is uh, are our minimum offense crimes, which are uh, drug crimes mostly. A lot of these people who are in prison are in prison because of like their social economic socioeconomic status, their gender, their you know maybe mostly because of their race, um, or you know like their LGBTQ or something like that. Like it's just it's it's so frustrating to hear that these people are wrongfully not wrongfully but you know like they're just they're being sentenced to something so big just because of who they are yeah yeah no that's exactly it i just learned from the aclu that arizona is locking up mostly women and people of color right now and then uh if you're lgbtq that's high up there too Mm -hmm. so there's definitely an issue with that that people need to start talking about and social class. If you don't have money to fight a case, you're definitely going to prison or jail because you're pleading what what they're giving you. Mm, yeah. And also what I learned while I was in county, most people were saying like, don't take your case to trial because if you lose, you will get the maximum punishment. So I would have to say like 98% of people did not even like question the prosecutors because they were scared. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's wild. It's just so, it's so crazy to me. Like growing up, I was always told, I mean, no fault to my parents, but like, I think it's just like the media and everything that folks who are bad go to jail and like they, they suffer the consequences of their actions but and so when I was young, growing up in a white neighborhood, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But now it's like, uh, no, <laughs> uh, let's seriously uh, kind of like break this down and talk about the like the nuances of all this stuff. It's so wild to me. There's so many layers of just oppression and discrimination on so many levels. So, mm-hmm. wow. I mean, we could have a whole nother episode on <laughs> going through the system, going through the going through the criminal justice system specifically and dealing with the trial and prosecutors and all that kind of stuff, because it's like you're almost set up to fail. No, that it is. We are set up to fail. Every law and rule that they give us is like, it's an obstacle for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as we're, we get released, we can't get jobs. We can't get housing there's limited resources, you know, and we get put back into prison for not having a job, for not having an address to claim. I don't even know how to, I mean, luckily I have a group, fellow activists and people who care about 
this issue to like guide me through it. But I know there's not, I mean, a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. So recidivism is like crazy. I think it's, it's got to be over 50% of people who go back to prison. Yeah. And we're definitely going to touch on the experiences that folks have post incarceration. I'm sure that could be another five hour (laughs) episode. (laughs) Um, My question is, do you think prison is transformative for people? I do not think the prison itself is transformative. I think it's up to the individual to make that decision. Um, A lot of the stuff that evolved me was all programs that were set up by the inmates. I was part of a thing called Gavel Club uh, Toastmasters, where it taught us, where we gave lessons on how to do public speaking, how to go through interviews. Yeah, there, uh, we also held like HA and AA groups, and that was all through um, the inmates. But the prisons themselves, they're always saying like, oh, we don't have the funds for that, or they definitely don't have the staff for it. Funny they say they don't have the funds for it when it's like they do. You're saying that you were able to like participate in programs really created by your community with like of inmates and people who you were living with. Uh, did you did they offer you like therapy? I know you said no to like grief therapy, but do they offer anything like that? Or do you have to like reach a certain status in order to actually be able to receive services? Or what does that kind of look like? Yeah, no, um, they do not offer therapy. And Um, I mean, they do have like a therapist on, but a lot of people don't want to go to that because it could lead them um, into solitary confinement. You know, if you're diagnosed with depression or anything, they will put you either on a medical yard uh, or lock you up alone because they think that everything is a danger to you. So no one really reaches out for that type of help. Wow. So it's there. It's one of those things that almost feels performative. And, you know, this is obviously just like me editorializing, but it sounds like it's one of those things where folks are like, oh, see, we have diversity and inclusion training because we offer it, but then nobody like utilizes it or it's like an awful trainer. It's just and a checklist. It's for, a checklist. Yeah. yeah. So they can say, oh, we offer, yeah. we offer this to the inmates, but like if you do it, then you're going to be receive consequences in some fashion, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. The prison, the um, they're like infamous for doing that. They just have to look good on paper and then they're like, oh, forget about it. Wow. And so, I mean, not only is the system outside of prison, like the justice system, but inside prison, you're almost set up to fail, too. And there's lots of discrimination that happens against you from COs, correction officers and social workers. Are all the people there? You know, all the corrections officers, are they as horrible as, you know, Orange is the New Black make it seem to be? Um, I would say it's like 50-50. There are some officers there that are all about power and feeling like they are are just like, they have control. They like to write out disciplinaries for the inmates. They're, they have fun. Like they have, they get joy out of making people's lives miserable because they're trained that we're all criminals and all what we do is manipulate and lie and cheat. So like they justify their actions. But I mean, half of them are there to like 
be a, a light in our in our lives. They they empathize with us. Definitely appreciated those. As soon as we found out a nice CEO was working that shift, like our day was so much better. They just have so much power on how our day goes. If you have a bad incident with a CEO, that could mean you going to a medium or maximum custody uh, yard because they're just out to get you. Yeah, it's like you have to kiss butt. It it just makes me think of this is no this is not really related, but I used to work at group homes um, for foster youth, and you know from the stories that they would tell us, it's like that's their home where they live, and then they have to adjust and almost code switch when different staff would come, and they they would change the dynamic of the house in which they live every day, all day. And that's where they're receiving services and that's where they lay their head to sleep, but they still have to act a certain ways for different staff. And so that's really sad. I mean, it sounds like it would be the exact same for y'all. You know, you live their day in and day out and you're forging all these friendships and this is, you know, your life. And then these people can just walk in off the street and be in a bad mood and then ruin shit for you for like months. Mm-hmm. Oh Yeah. It's crazy. And there's a shortage shortage of staff there too. So we had like rookies coming in every every month and like we would have to like feel them out, see what type of uh, officer they were. And a lot of them, especially they, they lowered the age of uh, correction officers. So now they can be 18 years old. Oh. And these 18-year-olds are telling you know, these ladies, how to live their life. Fuck that. Excuse my French. Mm -hmm. That's, I could (laughs) never. Yeah. It's like, I guess you get someone who is power hungry and they come in here and there you go. Mm. That's wild. Well, it starts with the training too. I mean, they could come in totally naive, but we have the Department of Corrections training them into like not trusting inmates and telling them, look, they're here for punishment and punishment only. So then they think they're doing a good job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like they're not taking uh, everybody's humanity into consideration, which is really, really, really troubling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the last thing they're doing. The very first thing you have to do when you go into prison is strip down naked, spread your butt cheeks and cough. Mm -hmm. Like it's the most dehumanizing experience. And you have to do that every day. What? You have to strip down every day? If you're working, yeah. If you ever leave the yard, if you're in um, classes, like if if you're taking GED classes, you have to strip down when you leave your yard and then when you enter into a new one. So four times just to go get an education. Oh my gosh. Because there's no trust. No, because they just want to show you that they have control over you. Yeah, oh, they have the shit. they have the yeah. power. It's no wonder that you you just you just want to get out. Like, I mean, I'm sure you're spending almost all your time there, saying like, I can't wait to get out of here. Yep. What are some things that the folks who have never been incarcerated that we have no idea? I mean, the food thing is huge. I think they're actually trying to come up with a bill to correct the food that they're given. 
but when I first got in, people were getting milk every day and they stopped as soon as I got in there because they said, we don't have any funds. Also, we get no seasoning, we get no sugar, no fresh fruit or vegetables because they say we could possibly make hooch out of it, uh, which is just a cop out. They just don't want to give us good things. The meat, we don't even know what the meat is. It's questionable. And then if we do want to eat good food, we have to buy it from store, which is uh, from Kifi. And they're like an empire that sells us like, it's all like the processed junk food that you'd find like chips, ramen, bagged tuna. And we would just make our own meals. Like my favorite meal was making Chinese food. And that was with pork rinds. And the sauce was Kool-Aid, ramen seasoning, soy sauce, and just random stuff that we would make. And that's what I would eat every day. Yeah. And I'm sure the store marks everything up significantly and you barely get any money for commissary. So it's like, how can you afford it? Yeah. No, I mean, you have to reach out to your family, really, because the jobs, they only pay 50 cents an hour. So, and that's like a good job. I, yeah. I just, I, I just passed out. And came back to life. <laughs> 50 cents an hour, you're saying. And that's a good job. It starts from 15 cents an hour. And those are all the people who are maintaining the prisons, like doing the yard work, doing like sewing the clothes, issuing state property. They don't even have to hire people outside. It's all inmates that do their work for them for cheap ass labor. Yeah. Then how come they're so out of funds? I need to talk to the manager. Uh, oh, funny you ask. They are trying to get like an oversight committee for the prisons and they're like not having it. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one thing I'm advocating for right now is oversight. Nice. Yeah. Necessary. Uh, oh, also the healthcare system. Mm. You know, it's not a good one. People hate going to medical. Like if they get sick or whatever they'll do whatever it takes and they'll just avoid medical because they lock you up in a cage to wait for the doctor which takes up the whole day and you know there were rumors saying that our main doctor was a veterinarian didn't even have like the right credentials <laughs> so no one trusted the medical system if you had to go to the doctor let's say you're like no i'm like super sick did they even like give you appropriate meds? Like what, can you take meds when you're in prison? Um, yeah, they do prescribe you meds. Um, a lot of people got Tylenol prescriptions for any type of injury. There's a lot of people that are on psych med. They'll do like a pill call. So you have to wait at a window and take your meds. And I've also heard about menstrual products. Like they don't offer anything for, you know, like tampons or, or pads. Uh-huh. So just recently, it, it was 2017, where uh, Representative Athena Salmon, she basically was a champion uh, to give women free feminine hygiene products. But what I learned today is that they're not implementing that law anymore because no one is seeing uh, what they're doing in prison. And they're telling the inmates now that they don't have the funds to give out free tampons. So 
people will literally bleed on themselves. They'll get in trouble for that and get sent into solitary confinement because they think like mentally they're not there, but really they just can't afford the stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's astounding that they're getting punished because they, they, well, A, they can't afford anything and B, they weren't, they're not given anything either. Like, why do you have to buy this? In general. Yeah. No one should have to buy feminine hygiene products. No. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Would you say that STI transmission is high in prison and do they do testing or no? They do when you first go to prison. So that's it. Um, and that's it, yeah. Wow, okay. Uh, I know in the men's prison, it's more of an issue, but I mm-hmm. uh, haven't heard too much about it with the women's. Interesting, okay. A lot of uh, the officers, they had fun busting people in the act of having sex. I'm sure they uh, With fun. the women's prison. Like, they would always go in and out of the shower rooms or, like, the bathrooms, knock on all the stalls. And if you were busted, it's called a Priya. And you basically you get a sex charge and you can get five years added on to your sentence. No. Because they label it as rape. Mm. Even if it's consensual. Wow. Wow. So you live two point seven five years with people banging on the doors when you're in the bathroom, walking in in the shower, always in your space yelling. What has that been like now? Like do you feel like there's a lot of after effects of just like living sort of hypervigilant like that. Yeah. Um, you know, before I got locked up, I didn't have that much structure. I was an only child or I am an only child and my parents were always working. And now having all that structure, making sure that my bed was made by 7 a.m., making sure that everything looked clean, all my dishes were clean and all that. It's it's transferred into my life now, and it definitely affects my relationship. Mm-hmm. I think my girlfriend is just like, oh, my gosh, you need to calm down because I get anxious when things aren't, like, mm-hmm. kept. Yeah. You know? And I'll be a big thing in prison was like keeping your shoes clean. So I'll like spend an hour just like shining my shoes, making sure they're clean. Mm -hmm. And I realize that's not really a common thing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't really have to do this. Yeah. What are your thoughts, May, on prison reform versus prison abolition? We live in a culture that is punitive you know if you do something bad you have to be punished in order for you to learn your lesson but what isn't talked about enough is like forgiving those people Mm -hmm. for you know making a mistake and I don't know I always just say prison reform because Mm -hmm. that seems more um, likely to happen there are gonna be there's always gonna be addicts There's always going to be people who steal, murderers, rapists. But what do you do with them? Do you punish them and send them to prison? Or could we shift the culture and care for these people and say, there's a root to these issues and these people need therapy? And if we are able to shift in that direction, I would say down with prisons. We don't need them anymore. If anything, we need more counselors and therapists in the long run there won't be so much crime. 
So I think in order to get to getting rid of all prisons, there, there has to be reform first. And that's getting the people who are incarcerated treatment and shifting the, the uh, stigma of having to punish these people. I mean, they're, they got the officers, they used to be called detention officers and now they're called corrections officers, but they they only changed their name. They didn't change their job duty. Mm-hmm. Beautiful answer. That makes a lot of sense to me. Because I'm like on the train of like prison abolition. And then when I think about it, I'm like, how could we get there? But it makes sense that it would have to be sort of like, again, a shift. Um, and then I think we need to chill on capitalism because if people are being incarcerated because they're poor, uh, that's a problem too, but that's another episode we could do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, capitalism ruins, ruins everything. Yeah. I just want to highlight that. (laughs) Point blank. Yep. That's true. I mean, they say that these prisons, the state prisons, they're not, uh, they're not for profit, but really they they are making profit through private businesses, which people don't even know who these businesses are. Activists, they're trying to figure out the the money trail. Like, where is all this money going? It's not going towards the community. So it's hard getting rid of those big billionaire empires. Yeah, and that's also like, brings me to the question of private prisons versus like state, because what I know about it is private prisons are obviously owned and run by like a private entity or I guess, and they just completely profit off of people. And what I went to a few meetings with folks who were incarcerated in private prisons and they said those people will just tack on additional years to your sentence because it's a buck for them type of situation. I was in a state, but they're definitely still trying to uh, get a buck from you. Uh, just recently they gave every inmate in Arizona, a tablet, but in order to use that tablet, they have to put their own money to like get music, games, uh, email their family. It's 25 cents per email. And then like another 25 cents if you want to like include a picture. It's just crazy how much money they're milking from these people who are already poor Mm -hmm. uh, just to like have a basic life. Yeah. Nickel and dime you all the way. Yep. Well, kind of shifting gears here to life after incarceration. What is it what is it like to be released? Like when you're released, is it sudden or do you know what's happening and you're kind of gearing up for it? Yeah, so um I mean they tell us our date of release pretty soon. Like I knew the first month my date. And there's a lot of anxiety that happens as you approach the gate is what they call it because if you get any type of disciplinary you lose your mandatory time off which in Arizona you have to do 85% of your sentence which is like really high compared to other states but um, if you get any type type of disciplinary you have to serve a hundred percent so there's a lot of anxiety of like your date possibly changing luckily you know I never got in trouble so I knew I had a plan um, I got, a, I had a ride. I didn't have an outfit. They pushed me out the door with some booty shorts and a t-shirt without any undergarments. And I was like humiliated, honestly. It, 
uh, a lot of these people who get released have to take city buses to wherever they're going. I went to a restaurant right after and that was like very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I think just like having a a menu in front of me and having decisions to make because I spent a whole two years without having to make any type of decisions for myself, really. They tell you when to wake up, when to shower, what to eat. And then all of a sudden you're out and like definitely going to the grocery store was way too much for me. Mm. I couldn't even make a decision to like save my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause your life, yeah. Like you're saying like every decision, everything, every move you make was dictated by someone else. I, I think about <laughs> incremental minds, like one of the agents he has, he's in prison and then he gets released and they're like leaving the room and he stands at the door and they're like, read you can you can go you don't have to wait he's like oh okay i think it's like instilled in you that there are things that you have to wait for or given permission to do like you said Mm -hmm. making these decisions it's overwhelming because you weren't able to do it for that long Mm -hmm. and then now you're like oh that i yeah i don't know how to do that me and my friends in there we would be like we would ask each other like am i institutionalized (laughs) (laughs) Has this experience changed me as a person? And it, it does. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how long you do. I mean, it's worse the longer you're in there, but some things, it's just like embedded into your head, especially dealing with authority, not trusting them, always thinking that someone's out to get you. That paranoia is mm-hmm. real once you get out. Yeah, I'm sure. And just like PTSD, of course, mm-hmm. just from like those experiences and the experience of being locked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and treated like less than a human. Yeah. Cause you don't think that there's stuff like that in the world, living in a, a good part of the world, mm-hmm. America, <laughs> we all have freedom. Mm-hmm. You don't think that someone could just strip you down and bend you over and make you cough mm-hmm. because you have your rights but that's not the case in prison. Yeah. And it's sad. And you, it kind of hardens you too. Like I hear sad stories all the time uh, now that I'm out and I can't even like react because I'm like, I've seen really bad stuff in there. It's hard for me to get sad now. And what a wild time to get out of there. When you are released from prison, how do you get housing? You know, if you don't have a support system or a friend or or anybody, how do you get housing? How do you get a job? How do you, how do you get your vital records and documents that you need to get a job? Or is it just like, okay, good luck, bye? Or is there transition plans? No, I mean, you have to have uh, housing when you're out because most people go out on parole. If you don't have any type of support, they do have contacts for halfway houses. So a lot of people go to those. There's church on the street. Those are pretty expensive. And it's easy to get violated there because if you don't get along with your halfway house manager, they will violate you and they'll send you back to prison. Mm. They'll say like, oh, you're hard to live with. And then if you have nowhere to go, you have to go back to prison. I was fortunate enough to have my friend to live with until I like found my own place. Even after you know, you get out, like you're still facing barriers and, and hardship and the system working against you. Yeah. I mean, also I had a job lined up, like the job that I had before waited for me to get out and hired me back on. So, and that's like really rare. Luckily I was a good 
employee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I couldn't imagine having to find a job right after. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you were one of the lucky ones. Yeah. What's the market like for uh, people who are released from prison who have a felony record? A lot of warehouse jobs, a lot of people going into like factories, hard labor. There was a company called Hickman's Farms where you um, have to just like pick eggs and clean barns. They hire formerly incarcerated people because they exploited them. Restaurant jobs, you know, a lot of Mm -hmm. restaurants don't look into uh, your background. Mm. And then there are some larger companies too that are like on the, the second chance movement, but not many. And they're all minimum wage jobs. Yeah. Yeah. That just makes me think again of like performative. If people are saying, yeah, we we hire people uh, who have a felony record. Look at us. And then they'll just exploit them. It's like, cool. You're not actually assisting this community. So thank you. No, all the jobs, they're they're not fun. You know, you've been released. How long have you been out now? I've been out for two years. You have been highly involved with activism. Is that correct? Yeah. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. So um, when I got out, I was put into um, the SAGE program, which was like a mandatory 90 days of drug counseling. And I met this man, uh, his name is Khalil. And he was like, hey, there's a cause that we're fighting for. And he works for the ACLU Smart Justice Campaign. And I told him, I was like, you know what? I'm really into activism. I did it while I was in prison. I heard about the bills that you guys were trying to pass about giving people 50% of their time off if they were nonviolent. And we were pushing for that to get passed. While I was in there, I wrote down the phone number of our representatives and had the people inside tell their family members to contact the representatives and to vote for this bill. And actually, the author of Orange is the New Black came to Phoenix and rallied people for it. And we thought this it was this huge thing in prison. People were crying happy tears because they thought that they would be getting out. People who were in prison for 10 years, thinking that they still had five more years left, would possibly be getting out that month if that bill passed. And uh, it turns out that there wasn't even much talk about it. (laughs) You know, I looked it up when I got out, looked up news articles, barely any coverage. And it was kind of just like, it it was disheartening because we thought we were doing big things in there. And there was a lot of hope. But when it didn't pass, the hope kind of just died down. And I think that's a a reason why people don't get into activism once they get out, because they're like, this has been an ongoing fight and nothing ever changes. I'm I'm still feeling good about it. Right now I'm volunteering uh, with the ACLU. I'm a community leader. I'm going through trainings, talking to legislators and doing like little media showings or whatever. You know, I got put into a commercial for the ACLU to endorse the counting attorney because she was all about prison reform. And, you know, I knocked on doors. I held an event to talk about uh, criminal justice reform. So that was really fun. Yeah, no, I'm definitely using my network uh, social media platform to just talk about these issues too. 
And that helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Podcasts. Yeah. Podcasts. <laughs> yeah. I did a news article about the women's firefighting program in prison because I was part of that too. They're trying to get time off because they're fighting fires. Great work, May. What can we do to support incarcerated folks? Um, I mean, there's a lot of nonprofits right now that are focusing on um, reforming the system. I know there's Poder in Action, Puente, and ACLU, the Smart Justice Campaign. They're always keeping us informed on what bills are coming out and reaching out to your local legislator, telling them that you care about this issue and that you think that it needs to change. So just really informing yourself, take an hour or two to research about what's going on with your community. We see a lot of homeless people out on the streets. We see a lot of poverty. And uh, I think, I just think the criminal justice system has a lot to do with that. Let's just go to the root of the issue to really make a good community for everyone. Mm -hmm. Snap, snap, snaps. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything that you can to to bring light to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, another thing, if you're in a, like a leadership position, prioritize giving people second chances and hire people who have felony records and give them a chance. Create that culture of forgiving people. Yeah. Set the tone of the prejudice and that stigma. And break the stigma. You know, if you hear your grandpa or grandma saying that like, oh, everyone that goes to prison is a criminal, they're no good. Tell them like, no, that it's not that. The system is, isn't is fair for certain groups of people. Mm -hmm. It's just because they didn't have money to get themselves out of a situation that people with money are able to. As soon as you hire an attorney, it's like get out of jail for free card, but not for free because you paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even, and even before like that part, it's like those groups who are continually oppressed have so many additional risk factors to even start down the road to being incarcerated. So from the get go, it's, it's just a lot harder, not even just because they don't have a lot of money to get a lawyer. Do you have any regrets of, getting that DUI of making that choice of having that drink and getting into your car that led you to getting incarcerated and into where you are now? I don't have any regrets because I do see some people who are still like trapped in that party culture, the industry culture, and it's just like their issues progress. And I think because I was incarcerated, I was able to like exercise my empathy for people from all walks of life. And just because of like who I am and what I value, like I want to be humanitarian. I want to like care about everyone in the world that, um, and I think like going to prison really, really tested my empathy. So no, I, I mean, I'm glad I went through this. Um, I'm glad this is like my fight now because it's mass incarceration. It's a lot of people, um, a lot of families being affected. And because of my experience, I can help solve this societal issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful, May. Yeah. Well, th thank you for, for sharing that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not glad that you went through it, but 
I guess I'm glad that you were able to, you're, you're here now to be able to share this with us and share your experience and hopefully be able to impact others who are listening and create that change and break the stigma. So thank you. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. Yeah. I hope you guys get super huge. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hope so too. Yeah. Thank you. See, we have one question left, May. But before we ask this question, do you want to share any of the social media platforms that you're on? I know you said that you like to share information that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm mostly on Facebook because I think that's like the easiest way to network for me. There's a lot of Facebook groups that are for activism. So, I mean, just look up my name. It's May Tiwamunkala. You can just enter T-I-W-A and it'll probably pop up. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's my Instagram, which is more hip. It's for, you know, the youngins, <laughs> but, <laughs> and that's uh, Philosome, and that's P-H-I-L-O-S-O-M-A-Y. Something like that. I'm sure it'll <laughs> pop up. Yeah, we'll share, we will share in the show notes, uh, but our final question, May, is what is one thing that you don't know how to do but want to know how to do or want to learn? I want to learn how to make beats. I love hip hop. I love like lyricalism and just like being able to put poetry into music. Like I really want to be able to create something to share my message in a more like artistic form. Hell yeah, man. I feel like you're about to drop the biggest album of 2021. Thank you so much, May. We really appreciate your time and uh, the message that you've provided us today. Oh, thank you for having me again. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe and share with your friends. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at who knows we don't pod. You can send us a message uh, with what topics you're interested in hearing more about. And if you want to be a guest on the podcast, we would love to have you on. Please drop us a line. Love you, boo-boo. Love you.